Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on November 21st, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. Here's the beginning of a New York Times story from October 24th. New data reveal that damaging air pollution has increased nationally since 2016, reversing a decades-long trend toward cleaner air. And here's a line from a BBC story dated November 4th. An Indian health ministry official said Delhi's pollution monitors did not have enough digits to accurately record pollution levels, which he called a disaster. Air pollution kills 7 million people globally every year. It is not just causing asthma attacks, but, you know, heart attacks, strokes, premature birth. That's journalist and author Beth Gardner, and her new book is Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. I recently called her at her home in London. After my 30-minute conversation with Gardner, stay tuned for a five-minute segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize with CRISPR gene editing pioneer Jennifer Doudna. And now, Beth Gardner. So when I got your book, I saw that it was about air pollution, and my initial reaction was, that's an, you know, that's an old story. Uh, I'm, I've been alive long enough. I remember the the Clean Air Act and how the Los Angeles air was a joke on Johnny Carson every night. And uh, I thought with climate change as the big environmental story, what's the big deal about air pollution right now? I mean, we see how bad Beijing is on TV sometimes. And then I read your book and I was really kind of blown away at, at how vital an issue this still is and how the United States, obviously, where I am, is not the whole story, and Beijing ain't even the, nearly the worst of it, and the amount of human suffering and early mortality that we see from air pollution is really mind-boggling. So is that kind of what you expected when you put a book out about air pollution? It wasn't what I expected before I started to learn about this. It's funny that you say that because I think I came to it in many ways with the same set of preconceptions. You know, I'm an environmental journalist. I cover health. I cover environmental stories. I live in London, which is a pretty badly polluted city. Um, and it's not something that for a really long time was ever on my radar screen. About, I guess it's seven years ago now, because it's just at, was just as the 2012 London Olympics were approaching, I was asked to do a story that was something to do with um, air quality vis-a-vis -vis the athletes that would be coming to London. And in the course of reporting that, I you know, obviously had occasion to sit down at my computer and read a little bit of the science about air pollution. And I guess that was the moment that I experienced the shock that you maybe experienced when you read my book. Because, you know, I think you're really right that this is not something that gets talked about a lot. You know, we hear sort of environmental journalism covering, rightly so, the climate crisis. Health journalists, I think, sort of focus on, you know, things like um, healthy eating, exercise, diabetes, all that stuff. And I think air pollution in some ways has fallen through the cracks. And what I learned in that, you know, 10 minutes that I initially spent Googling this for, uh, for a story I was working on, was that um, air pollution kills the World Health Organization, estimates 7 million people globally every year. It is not just causing, you know, asthma attacks, which I think we probably both would have been pretty ready to accept would be the case. 
Um, but, you know, heart attacks, strokes, premature birth, um, conditions like diabetes, dementia, obesity that I never would have sort of imagined would be connected to dirty air. And when I read those things, you know, as a journalist, I think it started to hit me that this is a really big story and it's a really important story. And, you know, we're none of us paying enough attention to it. It, it is actually now deeply intertwined with the climate story, um, which I think makes it even more consequential than it otherwise would be. But even without that connection, I mean, 7 million people a year, 100,000 Americans still dying from this. Where I live in the UK, 40,000 premature deaths every year from air pollution. You know, that's that's a big story on its own. So I, I sort of began with, a you know, I guess a... Um, an effort, a journey to try to understand this. And, you know, you said something that's really true, which is that American air quality is dramatically better than it was when when uh, the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. So for the U.S., it is a, it is a story of progress for sure. But, you know, we are not there yet and we, we still have a long way to go. Yeah, I think that that a lot of people kind of think about air pollution and they think about places like Beijing, you know, Chinese people wearing masks. They think about India, which actually has way worse air pollution than than China even does. But it's true that that this is a, you know, a story that is is of even larger proportions in poor countries in the developing world. But it's our story too in the US and the UK and this is something that's still, you know, killing people and and making us sick in in the developed world. It's sort of invisible. We don't see it, you know, unless you're a, a statistician who can kind of analyze, you know, death rates and compare them to pollution levels. You know, I so I felt as a journalist, I wanted to find a way in the book to kind of try to to make this story visible to people. Uh, tell the quick anecdote about Richard Nixon, who signed the Clean Air Act. Yeah, so so Nixon not only signed the Clean Air Act, uh, you know, one of our most consequential laws, I think, in modern American history and and the foundation of sort of American, you know, environmental and health protective law, he also created the Environmental Protection Agency. But Nixon was no environmentalist. He, you know, he was a very astute politician and he could see which way the wind was blowing. He really signed the Clean Air Act in order to sort of deny Ed Muskie, who who everyone thought was going to be his opponent uh, in the next presidential election, to deny him kind of a cudgel to use against Nixon, you know, who could criticize him on environment if he signed the, the Clean Air Act and created the EPA. But there's a, the funny story is that just before he died, one of his former aides said to him, you know, President Nixon, you'll go down in history as a, a great environmental president. And Nixon said, God, I hope not. <laughs> You know, this was not where his heart was, but he 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 felt uh, the pressure because this was something Americans really cared about. Yeah. And your book really talks about the effect that a mass movement, the the public opinion can have on getting governments to do things. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important part of the air pollution story. And it's also a really important part of kind of the dynamic that we're in right now. You know, back in the late 60s in 1970, you could see it. You could see the pollution in, in American air. You know, you'd come home at the end of the day and, and your collar would be black um, from coal smoke and car exhaust. 
we've come so far now in terms of improving our air quality because of this law that it's it's much less visible now. And I think that in some ways the, the Clean Air Act is in danger in that way of becoming a victim of its own success because that public support was a really important part of, you know, like we were just talking about, what helped this law to get onto the books. Yeah, it's like the vaccine issue, you know, that nobody has exactly these diseases in the developed world anymore. So people say, why do you need these vaccines? Well, yeah, they're, they're like you said, a victim of their own success. So um, the material, let's talk about Delhi in India, because yeah. you, you went there and it's just so incredible. Yeah, it's horrendous. And I wasn't even there during the worst time of year. It, it can vary sort of seasonally. And the, the really, you know, absolutely off the charts pollution in Delhi comes usually in the autumn in November because all the farmers in that part of India, sort of upwind of of the capital, after they harvest their their wheat and stuff, they set their fields on fire and to to clear the fields, and it creates this smoke that is so heavy that NASA photographs it from space, and you can you can go online and see these images. It's just like black clouds heading towards the city of millions and millions of people. Um, you know, and very predictably, because we know that this is exactly what the science tells us happens when air pollution spikes, you know, very predictably, death rates go up, hospitalizations, heart attacks go up, strokes go up. So I was there in, in the springtime, which is, you know, compared to that, relatively cleaner. But, you know, it's really a year round problem. And the thing that kind of boggled my mind about Delhi is in most of the places that I went to and in most parts of the world, there's sort of like one or two really big, you know, polluters. It's it tends to be obviously transportation, cars and trucks, ships, and it's you know industry, whether that's power plants or factories. Um, but in India, sure, they have those things. But there's there's just so many other contributors to the pollution too. You know, there's the the farmers' fields, like I just described. There's garbage fires all over the city because they don't have regular trash collection. So the garbage just piles up and then people set it on fire. Um, you know, people uh, in the street, homeless people are burning, you know, wood or sometimes even plastic or other garbage for heat. People all across India, villagers are, are burning wood and, you know, cow dung for um, for their cooking. So there's so many different sources that are contributing to the horrendous air problem that they have. Um, and, you know, that creates a real challenge in cleaning it up because you, you've got to do so many things at once. And so far, the Indian government has really, you know, failed to engage with this in any meaningful way. And the human consequences are horrendous. And you also have the the cook stove issue, which is yeah. goes way beyond India. It does. But India is a real sort of, um, you know, epicenter for that problem. And it's interesting because these these dirty cook stoves, that's sort of more of a, more of a rural problem. Uh, you know, people who don't have access or money for better fuels like gas or electricity. And for a long time, it was sort of, you know, cordoned off by scientists as a separate thing. This is they called it indoor air pollution and, you know, sort of regular old pollution from from cars and, and factories and stuff was considered outdoor pollution. But the the latest research has actually started to shed light on the fact that these things are really deeply interconnected. So the the indoor, now they call it household air pollution, these dirty cooking fires, obviously it has the most immediate effect on the, the people in the house, especially women 
doing the cooking and children who tend to be around a lot during the day because they are breathing the most concentrated fumes. But what, what scientists now realize is that, um, that though that smoke, it, it doesn't just dissipate. It, it uh, has a real impact on the air quality of the country as a whole, including big Indian cities. And it's now believed that these dirty cook stoves are contributing 25% of the total Indian air quality problem. So these things are really interconnected. And, you know, that sounds kind of daunting. But I guess the other way to look at it is that if you give these villagers access to a better way to cook, generally speaking, the, the quickest way to do that is gas, natural gas or some kind of LPG or an electricity hookup that will not only have a huge benefit for their health in a very immediate way, but it'll actually really help to make progress on cleaning the air of the country as a whole. And just how much worse is Delhi's air than Beijing's air? Um, you know, it keeps changing because the, these numbers are, are constantly being updated. The, the most recent statistic that I remember seeing was that it was like 40% worse or something like that. And, De and Beijing is actually really starting to make progress on this. China as a whole, you know, they, they're, they tend to zigzag a lot in their policy. So the progress tends to be, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes even the other way around. But generally speaking, the Chinese government has really started to engage with this. And, you know, we were talking before about mass movements of people and how that can make politicians act. Obviously, China's not a democracy, but the dynamics of sort of public opinion and political action are very different there than they are in, in a Western country. Um, but nonetheless, the, the Chinese government, I think, over the last sort of six, eight, ten years has really started to realize that this is something that people are concerned about, particularly the urban middle classes who, if anybody has any kind of political voice in China, you know, it's them. And the government, I think, in an effort to, you know, kind of prevent this from becoming something that kind of gets people out into the street and becomes a focal point for anger that could even, you know, threaten stability, threaten the Communist Party's grip on power. The, the government has, I think, tried to sort of forestall that by actually doing something about the problem. Um, you know, so we've started seeing coal caps for certain regions of China. Um, you know, there's questions uh, on a nationwide basis of, of whether they're going to successfully uh, plateau and start to reduce their coal use anytime soon. But, you know, in the in the regions where the, the pollution sort of been drifting to Beijing and the other big East Coast cities, we've been seeing real progress. And there were actually some numbers out pretty recently indicating that Beijing's particle pollution, these tiny particles that are the most dangerous to health, were down 60 percent this year compared to, I think it was eight years ago, um, because of, of these actions that the government is taking. And, you know, of course, in order to reduce coal usage, they're starting to ramp up renewables, invest money in solar power, in wind, and now throwing a ton of money at electric vehicles. So they're going in the right direction. Um, and I think that's actually the biggest difference right now between China and India. You mentioned the particles, the 2.5 M particles. Yeah, they're called PM 2.5. So that number refers to the size of the particle, 2.5 microns, which is very, very tiny, you know, m completely invisible and much, much smaller than even the width of a human hair. Um, these particles sort of result whenever you basically burn anything, whether it's, you know, gas or diesel in your, your car's 
tank or, you know, wood in a, an Indian village or, or coal in a Polish power plant. There's all kinds of different pollutants and they all do bad things to you. But these particles are the most powerfully linked by this really now huge body of scientific evidence to very, very powerful health impacts. Um, and the reason is that they penetrate all the way into your body. Scientists have now found these tiny particles in placentas. They found them in um, the cells of the heart and in brain tissue. So, you know, what that tells you is that the stuff that you're breathing, that, that we're breathing every day in, you know, in, in cities around the world is really touching every part of our bodies. And you, you talk in the book, and it's fairly obvious that um, a lot of these conditions affect poor people a lot worse than they do well-off people, even to the point of here in the states where the pollution is much better. I mean, it's far less bad, let's say, let's say it that way. Uh, if you live right next to the Cross Bronx Expressway, which is not a well-off neighborhood, you you get a lot more particulates and noxious gases in your lungs and the rest of your body than you do if you live even 200 yards away. Yeah, exactly. That's really true. And I, I think that that is a really important dynamic and it's a really important part of the air pollution story. And it holds true almost everywhere. I mean, I saw that in Delhi and I saw it in L.A. and the San Joaquin Valley in California. It's true in London where I live. Um, you know, and the way I put it in the book is that this is sort of a double stranded dynamic. Air pollution hurts everybody who breathes it. Right. So L.A. has high levels of, you know, ozone and, and particles as a region, as a citywide on a citywide basis. And, and everyone who lives there will be affected by that. But it also affects some people more than others. Um, and, you know, we can all guess who's going to end up living next to the big container port or the Cross Bronx Expressway, or, um, you know, the South Circular Road in London, or who's sleeping on the street in Delhi. It's poorer people. Um, and th therefore, they are exposed to, you know, much higher levels of pollution. And they're more vulnerable to it because they, you know, are less likely to have access to health care, more likely to have, you know, some other health problem that it may sort of intersect with. And, you know, the other thing here is sort of um, a racial divide question, because it's not just um, economic inequality that is driving this. But um, there's a, a really terrific new book by a writer named Harriet Washington. It's called A Terrible Thing to Waste about this notion of it's called environmental justice or environmental injustice, this sort of, you know, area of concern. And what she found is that... Um, African-American neighborhoods where people are earning 50 to $60,000 a year are exposed to the same level of pollutants as white people who are earning $10,000 a year. So that tells you that this is not just about money. It's also about, um, you know, race and sometimes also immigration status, ethnicity. And, you know, that sort of comes down to historical questions of, you know, where do sort of polluting companies find it? politically easy to locate whatever, a recycling facility, an incinerator, and very often, too often in our history, that has been neighborhoods of color. You talked about China zigzagging. We've been zagging here in the United States, too, for, yeah. uh, <laughs> That's for sure. the last couple of years. Um, you, you talk about what the EPA is like 
under yeah. this administration. And it's it's certainly not the protection agency. They're just trying to dismantle anything that is protective of the environment and human health related to the environment. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on there. So obviously, we've seen, you know, some really, really aggressive um, environmental protection and health protection rollbacks where the Trump administration is trying to actually undo these regulations, which, you know, like we were talking about before with the Clean Air Act, these rules that have made America's air cleaner, there are studies, literally the, the Clean Air Act right, and the regulations that have been implemented under it have saved millions of American lives since 1970. And by the way, also trillions of dollars. So, you know, we're for sure in danger of going backwards and, you know, very likely to see dirtier air as these rules are undone. But I think more than sort of individual rules being changed, there there's a couple of other, you know, really consequential things happening a little bit more beneath the surface. One is a, a really serious brain drain going on at the EPA because there's so much, you know, demoralization going on there among longtime staff members who, you know, just see the way things are going and are not being allowed to really properly do their jobs. The, the EPA has, you know, its strength has really been its expertise. There are people working there who are not just health experts, not just, you know, air quality experts, but sort of technical experts in, you know, how car engines work and how power plants work. So they really can effectively enforce rules that affect those sectors. And I think to me, the, the most radical thing that's happening right now in the EPA around these issues is a, an assault on science. Science has really been the pillar of the EPA, and it's been the pillar of the Clean Air Act as well. And we're seeing, you know, I think we've all become pretty used to uh, in recent years, even pre the Trump administration, you know, the dynamic of climate science denial on the right. Um, but now we're also starting to see air pollution science denial. There's a real effort to sort of shoot down some of these enormous sort of gold-plated, rock-ribbed, very, very respected studies linking air pollution to all kinds of health problems. Um, and, you know, the reason they're doing that is clear because those studies are used to justify regulations that then cost money to industries who have to comply with them and, and kind of clean up their act. And there's a real anti-regulatory, you know, zealotry right now in, in the Trump administration. But they're also doing things like disbanding scientific advisory panels. So the EPA has always had these sort of uh, advisory boards of experts and scientists who give input when they're, they're making new regulations or updating regulations. And, you know, they're, they're using the language of science, actually, to attack the science. So one thing with they're doing with the scientific advisory panels is they they said that um, that they created a new rule that said that if you're a scientist and you have received grant money in your career from the EPA to do research on something which you know almost all scientists working in the field will have received money like that you have a conflict of interest and you can't be on this advisory panel anymore. But if you are from a regulated industry, a coal company or a chemical company or a car company, you don't have a conflict of interest and you are absolutely fine to sit on the board. Um, they're using the language of transparency to try to rule a lot of these big 
studies on the health effects of pollution out of bounds. They're studies that depend on confidential information that's HIPAA protected. And the administration is saying, you know, we want to see the underlying data, which is anonymized and can't be released. They're sort of monkeying around with the formulas where cost-benefit analysis are, is calculated to, you know, justify or not justify a regulation. So to me, more than any one sort of regulatory change is this effort to attack and kind of undermine the science. That seems more radical and, you know, potentially more consequential going forward. It's uh, it's mind-boggling. And again, the, the costs of dealing with pollution are, can be pretty obvious and the benefits can be somewhat hidden. So economically, it looks like oh, this is too expensive, we can't do it. But in, in actuality, you get a, a huge benefit. It's just that the benefit is not related to the actions that you directly took. So if it costs money to put in a scrubber and you save money because a whole bunch of people don't get sick and die, you don't see that on the ledger. Right, and I think that that's such an important part of the political dynamic around you know, really probably not just air pollution, but but other kinds of environmental cleanups, too. And it's true, not just in the U.S., but, you know, really everywhere I went, because whenever you talk about environmental regulation, you're very quickly talking about dollars and cents and what's it going to cost to clean up. Um, you know, certainly those are legitimate questions to ask, but we tend to get very focused on the price tag of cleaning up and not very focused on what the benefits will be. And exactly like you said, there's this dynamic that the ones who are going to have to pay the costs, usually these are, are companies, whether it's a, a power plant, a utility, or it's a, a car company that needs to install you know, new equipment on their vehicles or whoever the polluter is, they know what it's going to cost. Um, and that cost is very visible. And oftentimes these are people with a real political power and voice and abil ability to influence and have input on the process. But the benefits, they're very real and the science is really strong. Um, you know, the, there's been a, a sort of official EPA studies done on the Clean Air Act and it, they find that the benefits to health and productivity and lives saved in dollar terms when you monetize that is dozens of times greater than the cost. But right, exactly like you said, those benefits are very widely spread among sort of, you know, millions of people. And also we we don't know that we benefited. Like if I don't have a heart attack tomorrow or I don't lose somebody who I love, you know, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and thank a politician, you know, 30 years ago who enacted a regulation that probably I've never heard of and that made the air cleaner than it otherwise would be. It's just an invisible benefit and we kind of take it for granted. And therefore, the, the political debate when you're talking about cleaner air and how to get it cleaner tends to focus more on the cost. The issue of global warming obviously transcends so many different things. But these two subjects, air pollution and global warming, are, as you said, deeply intertwined. Can you talk to us about how they are? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, like I said, I do think air pollution is, you know, a really important story and it's a really important danger, absolutely in its own right. But it is interconnected with climate change because basically they're caused by the same things and the solutions are the same or they overlap to a large degree. And the way I put it in the book is that 
these two problems are both symptoms of this the same thing this unhealthy foundation that we built the modern world on and that's fossil fuels um and you know you can make a lot of progress towards cleaner air even with fossil fuels we have made progress by you know tighter regulation and and better scrubbers on and smokestacks and things like that but if you really want air that's actually healthy we are going to have to move away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy whether it's wind or solar or other kinds of renewables so you know that sounds really daunting and it, and it is daunting to say you know move off fossil fuels but i guess the other way to look at it and and the way the other way that this kind of dovetails with the climate crisis is that the, that's something we need to do anyway right get get off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible and onto renewables and cleaner energy in order to keep our climate stable and our planet you know inhabitable um so if you know that you've got to do that anyway but now you're going to get a sort of immediate health boon from it, which is that you're you're saving the lives and sparing the health of all these people who are currently getting sick and dying from dirty air. Then that sort of seems to me like all the more reason to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we don't have time, but your, your book has chapters on Poland and the coal situation there and uh, California and the agricultural pollution and what people have to deal with there and there's so much good stuff uh in the book so and it it's really well written it was a pleasure to read which is always nice for me so i really appreciate that thanks steve yeah i you know you could i could have almost gone anywhere in the world and written about air pollution because there's not very many places that don't have any of it but i tried to choose chapters that choose places that would each sort of show us a different facet of the story. So like you said, you know, Poland's about coal, London's about diesel, um, San Joaquin Valley in California is about agricultural sources of pollution and, and also that dynamic of inequality. And also, you know, I really didn't want to write a book just for people who already know about this for, you know, technical experts. Air pollution's a daunting subject, right? So that puts a big burden on you as a writer to try to make it interesting and, and, you know, show why it matters. And to me, that meant, you know, going kind of up close and, and telling the stories of not just the people who are affected, but, you know, the people who, who are fighting for change, the people who are, you know, scientists who are, are studying what this does to us and how we can fix it, politicians and, you know, political fights. And there's actually a lot of drama there. So, you know, I, I thought it was a, a powerful story and I, I tried to, to tell it in a way that, you know, would do justice to that. You've probably heard of gene editing as a way to control the spread of malaria or to treat diseases like sickle cell anemia. Jennifer Doudna, a pioneer in the field, set off a revolution when she discovered the molecular gene editing tool CRISPR-Cas9, an achievement for which she was awarded the 2018 Kavli Prize in Nanoscience. As with every discovery that gives us a glimpse into the unknown, this discovery has unearthed new mysteries and raised questions we never thought to ask before. As part of our partnership with the Kavli Prize, Scientific American's Custom Media sat down with Doudna to talk about how lessons we're learning from humble microbes may change the way we handle and think about human disease and the big questions that need to be solved for CRISPR to reach its full potential. But first, what exactly is CRISPR? 
CRISPR is a genome editing technology. It's a way that scientists can make targeted changes to the DNA in cells or organisms to control the genetics of biology in ways that are transformative. Doudna and her colleagues were studying bacteria that use CRISPR as an immune system. Because CRISPR can target specific DNA sequences, it protects the bacteria from infection by viruses. Of course, that raises the question of whether CRISPR could eradicate viruses in our bodies. Because viruses have a remarkable ability to adapt and evolve resistance to targeting mechanisms such as the one used by CRISPR-Cas. I think that is not too likely. On the other hand, do I think that there may be ways to target bacteria that are infectious agents in people? Absolutely. I think that's one of the forefronts of the field. Dowden and her colleagues are also sequencing microbial genomes to see what other secrets these organisms hold. Because of the inability of scientists to culture most microbes in a laboratory setting, we know only a very small fraction of those kinds of organisms. So many scientists are studying microbes in the environment by sequencing their DNA and piecing together information about their lifestyles and their community partners and their environmental niches by looking at their genomes. These studies have revealed that different bacteria have different kinds of CRISPR systems, some of which may even be better than what we're using now. Take, for example, CASX. CASX is a fun kind of newer iteration of the CRISPR-Cas type of enzyme where it's using an RNA-guided mechanism so it can be programmed to find and cut DNA just like Cas9, but it's a lot smaller and it looks completely different in terms of its molecular shape. So we think that for those reasons, it may be easier to get it into cells for delivery as well as to ensure that it does the kind of accurate editing that will be necessary, certainly for clinical use. Aside from treating genetic diseases in the clinic, where else will CRISPR make its mark? I think over the next decade or so, we'll see tremendous advances also in agriculture brought about by gene editing. And I think the opportunity to produce plants that have protection from climate change, from pests that potentially have higher nutritional value, I think these are all the kinds of things that will be possible going forward. And that's something that I think will ultimately, at least in the short term, have a broader global impact than any of the biomedical uses. In addition to this broad spectrum of applications, CRISPR gives users the ability to redirect evolution. This raises ethical concerns within the scientific community. It's a kind of an awesome thing to think about, the power to control the evolution of our species. It's something that in the not-too-distant past would have been unimaginable because we had no idea that there would be a technology that would allow that kind of manipulation of DNA. But now that it's here, I think it engenders a, a time when we have to be very thoughtful and transparent about how this technology will be utilized in the future. How does it affect the inequalities that we see across society? How does it affect people's decisions about reproduction and genetic disease? How do we even define genetic disease? What do we consider to be health versus disease pathways? Before any of that happens, a collaborative effort will be needed to address some of the controversial issues raised by CRISPR. I'd like to see a lot more outreach and opportunities for public interaction with scientists to explore not only the fundamentals of the technology, but also the broader implications of gene editing. 
This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Jennifer Doudna is an HMMI investigator and professor of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Don't miss the announcement for the next Kavli Prize laureates on May 27, 2020. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find at least 30 stories in our archives about CRISPR and gene editing. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 